0: Hey, I wanna before we get into tonight's sermon, into tonight's message, I just I we, we want to do the welcome home moment. It's it's a, a moment where we're just committed to to every Saturday this year just pausing in our service to talk to people about the gospel, but we I moved it into a different slot just a little while ago, I had such a sense that there was going to be somebody in our online community. It might be somebody here needs to hear it too, but I had such a sense in my in my heart as we were worshiping that there was going to be somebody that's part of our online community. You might not know it, but if you're newer to the churches, hundreds of people that are just logged in every single weekend that are part of, of that online church community. And I just, I had this feeling that there's somebody that, I don't know if they're in the living room, they're in the kitchen, they're on their back deck, maybe they're driving down the road and they're listening right? They're, they're, they're streaming it, but that this moment was going to be for them. And so if you can hear my voice, you know it because your heart, right? You with, you, you, you've been there before, right? When God is speaking directly to you, your heart begins to flutter a little bit. And I have such a sense that that's happening to someone right now. And so what we want to say to you is that we understand that your greatest need is just like our greatest need. It's to know God and to be known by him that every person that is born into this world is born with that same desire, and it is our deepest desire to know God and to be known by Him. And all of us, no matter how good we might think that we are, no no matter how much we feel like we've improved in this life with good deeds and good thoughts and, and good actions, no matter how much we think that maybe we have grown All of us, as we look back into the story of our life, we have regrets. I have regrets. You have regrets. And those regrets, the Bible calls sin, and that sin, it keeps us separated from God. We're born into this world separated from him, and the sin that we commit keeps us separated from him. And on that final fateful day, when we all breathe our last, just like we were praying for someone who passed, we're all going to stand before God and have to give an account for our lives. And it breaks our heart as a church to think that there will be people— who will stand before God on that day of judgment, and it will be the first time that they ever have a sense of knowing God and being known by Him. And we want to change that as a church, because we can know God before that day. We can be invited into a relationship with Him before that day. And there's a lot at stake, people, because the smallest of sin in God's justice system, the smallest of sin, God said, is worthy of eternal death. But enters Jesus into the story. And he brings what we call good news, or maybe what you've heard referred to as the gospel, which simply means good news. And that good news begins with this belief that he changes us on the inside. So we don't have to be a slave to our human nature anymore. A favorite verse of ours is Second Corinthians 5.17 that says, If anyone's in Christ, they are a new creation, the old is gone, and the new has come. There is a transformation that can take place in our lives that's supernatural. We can begin to grow into the person that he created us to be. And along the way, guess what? We're still going to make mistakes. And Jesus says, hey, that's okay. I've taken care of that. Because when he died on the cross for us 2,000 years ago, not only did he die for all the regrets that we already have, he also died for the regrets that are still to come. So on that final day, when we stand before God on that day of judgment, we do not have to stand in fear of condemnation, in fear of eternal death. But we can step into that moment with a humble hope that we will be invited with him into eternal life. So every single Saturday, we're going to tell that story. We call it the welcome home moment, not because we're trying to welcome you home to City Life Church, but because we want to welcome you home to the family of God. Because when you make a vow of devotion to Christ, you take your first spiritual breath, you're born into the family of God, and all of heaven says to you, welcome home. So we want people to have a chance to hear, and in hearing they might believe, and in believing they might make their own vow of devotion to Him. So if you're that person that's listening to this right now, wherever you are, then I'm going to invite you, you know because your heart is stirring, you can feel it, I'm going to invite you to borrow my words as we all pray together. Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. that you died for my sins, that you rose from the dead conquering sin and death. And I invite you now to come into my life and begin to do that work of transformation, to begin to bring about that change inside of me. I accept the forgiveness that you offer, and I now live the rest of my days with the hope and the expectation of eternal life in heaven with you forever. And so from this day forward, I commit my life to you, to live for you in Jesus' name. Come on, and everybody said together, amen. If you are online and, and and you prayed that, then there's a, a host that wants to talk with you more. We want to put resources in your hands. We can pray with you in that online chat. If you're here in this room and as you look back over the story of your life, you've never made a vow of devotion to Christ, then we hope that you would find one of us at the end of the service. There's always people here that are praying at the end of the service that would love to talk with you more. The Bible uses this incredible picture of being born into the Family of God. And when you're born into the family of God every day for the rest of your life, that greatest need, that greatest desire of knowing Him and being known by Him is your prize all of your days. All right, Father's Day's coming up. So I'm talking to the wives for a moment to put on your husband's calendar that after church on Saturday, June 17th, we're going to be rolling over to the campus of CNU. And Lions Bridge, it's a soccer team, it's a semi-pro team, is going to be playing the semi-pro team for D.C. United. And so uh, we've got uh, 30 tickets that we bought, and they are $10 a piece. And so we're going to be talking with you more about how you can get one of those tickets. But we're just telling you now to mark that on your calendar Saturday, June 17th, after the service. Again, I'm talking to the dudes, but I'm really talking to the lady that's with you. Because you're going to be the one that says, hey, I think you should go to that. You tracking with me? All right. You don't sound like you're tracking with me. The Shema series that we are in is a part of what we believe about discipleship here at City Life Church. There's a graph graphic that's going to come up on the screen now that shows four different quadrants. And this year we are committed to working through all four of these because you need to be committed to working through all four of these for the rest of your life. It's one thing to believe in Jesus in an intellectual sense. It's something else to believe in him in a biblical sense. Did you know that the devil himself believes in Jesus? Did you know that? The devil gives intellectual assent to who Jesus is. But that's not the kind of biblical belief that is required of us. When the Bible talks about believing in Jesus, when you and I are supposed to believe in Jesus for eternal life, the Bible is not talking about intellectual ascent. It's talking about something much deeper. Now, it begins with some type of understanding, but there is also supposed to be something inside of you that says, I'm submitted to who Jesus is. I'm surrendered to who Jesus is. I'm in the family. I'm on mission with him, and I follow after him, and I want to become like him. That's the kind of belief that we're called to. And we believe that in this life, that you and I are supposed to be strategic in our efforts, which we call discipleship. And so as a church, we want to teach you how to do it. We're going to put practical tools into your hands. And so at the beginning of the year, we did doxa, which is learning about the beliefs of Jesus. Right now we're in this series called Shema, which is learning about Jesus' obedience. At the end of the summer, we're going to pick up praxis with jesus's character and then in the fall throughout the holidays we're going to talk about shalom jesus's peace this is where we we're going to we we camp as christians for the rest of our lives the strategic work of discipleship that you and i are called to shema is about having a reflexive obedience in our heart to god i don't know about you but i want the reflex of my heart To be one of obedience to God. If you are a parent, you understand this idea of reflexive obedience. If you've given your child instruction, you recognize an expression on their face where they're trying to decide if they're going to do what you say. Can we all agree that we have those kinds of interactions with God? He calls us his children for lots of reasons. One is it's a term of affection, but can we also agree it's also a little bit of an accusation? He's saying you act like a child sometimes because we are childish Sometimes we're in out and out rebellion with God. Sometimes we're reluctant, we're not sure. But then there are times when something in our heart just naturally responds to the prompting and the instruction of the Holy Spirit. I want the reflex of my heart to be one of obedience to God, which means that I am constantly thinking about these three words in reference to me and my relationship with Him. Am I in rebellion, am I in a place of reluctance or am I in a place of reflective obedience, reflexive obedience? It's hard for us to go from rebellion to reflexive obedience in one step. God is patient with us, right? If, if you've got a place in your life where you're in out-and-out out rebellion, and you and you know that you do if you have that, right? Something that you know that God's asking of you and you're like, yeah, I'm not going to do it. Not, not making that change. I know I'm supposed to, but I'm not going to. God's okay with you moving from rebellion to reluctance. Did you know that? In fact, I think that's the place the Holy Spirit will try to get us into. Into a place where we're honest about our fears. Into a place where we're willing to talk with God about our doubts and our questions. To talk with him about why we were in a place of rebellion. To talk with him about what we are reluctant about. And in that place of an honest exchange about what's happening in our heart, we find ourselves gravitating to this place. Of saying yes to him. One of the four most telling measures of my spiritual maturity is my Shema. When I get to the end of my days, right, just as, just as Brendan was talking about, when my chapter gets written, well, one of the things that God describes about me, well, one of the things that characterize me is that I'm more inclined to saying yes to God than I am to saying no. And I want that to be your story too. So we believe that if we're gonna to move towards this place of reflexive obedience, you've gotta do the hard work of these five conversions. And it is hard work! These, 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 these these five conversions: effective conversion, intellectual conversion. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Moral conversion, socio-political conversion, and religious conversion. Pastor Justin's going to be doing effective conversion next week. But this is this is this is where we begin to do some heavy lifting. Matthew seven is the famous story at the into the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about, or have you built your house on seeking sand, or have you built it on the solid rock? And then he sums it all up by saying, because the difference between the two is the one who hears my word and does it. Are we going to be people who are reflexively ob- obedient to God? Because if I am, I've got to do the hard work of these Five conversions. This is the kind of stuff that Christians, we we spend too little time talking about. We understand this idea of a religious conversion, but if that's all we teach people about, I think we're setting them up for failure and frustration. Intellectual conversion. Let me read you this definition. It's going to come onto the screen. Intellectual conversion involves taking responsibility for the truth or falsity of one's beliefs by examining them and testing them. You might say, well, I... Don't have any false beliefs. And I would say, well, then you really need to do some of this work. Let me read you two other things. Intellectual conversion requires one to adopt an attitude of contrite fallibleness. Come on, that's good, isn't it? That acknowledges the limited nature of one's personal view of the world. We're not just talking about doctrinal beliefs. We're talking about all of your beliefs all of your beliefs. If you think Boston is going to come back and win this series against Miami, I'm just saying, you need some help. You need intellectual conversion. Think about all the things that fall under this category of belief for you. Political beliefs. How about that? about beliefs about society and community and relationships, beliefs about sexuality. There's so many things. In fact, you're going to be hard-pressed to find something that, that, that you accept that doesn't fall under the category of ideology. And all of us are flawed. All of us are fallible. Listen to this one. People who are actively engaged in an ongoing process of intellectual conversion Exhibit. this is good, a love of truth that transcends any particular belief that I might have. Meaning that I am more committed to this journey of discovering truth than I am to being right. Because I recognize, because I am fallible, that there are some things I have accepted to be right that are not. The only person that's never been wrong is Jesus who walked upon this earth. Can we agree on that? All the rest of us have things in our lives where we've been wrong and guess what? 10, 20, 30 years from now, we're gonna get to some things that we think are right today and we're gonna discover we're wrong then. Living with this humility and this acceptance of my fallibility. I think Jesus is talking about this in Mark 12 where he says that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That There is a journey of intellectual growth And maturity, that's a part of the Christian experience. Those quotes come from a book called Moses and Pharaoh's House. We're leaning into that a lot through this series. I've got three things that I want to tell you about truth tonight. Somebody say, truth is undefeated. Truth is undefeated. Look at Psalm 119, 160. It reads this way. Truth is undefeated. Psalm 119, 160. The very essence of your words is truth. All your just regulations will stand forever. God gives us a book we call the Bible that we believe is divinely inspired. And this book is the standard for everything that is true. We we believe that. We we believe that the Bible is infallible. But, But here's the rub. We as people are fallible. So everything that we think that we've understood the Bible to say, sometimes we're wrong. The Bible doesn't have a problem, we have a problem in our understanding of it. Which is why we're dependent on our relationship with the holy spirit it's why we need biblical scholars who have devoted their lives to study that we can learn from it's why we need to be in communities just like this so that we can challenge one another so we can say this is what i think that means to me what does it mean to you this is part of what in the book of proverbs when it talks about iron sharpening iron this is part of what it's referring to is that all of us go, are going through this life willing to wrestle with things that we are convinced we are right about and open Open to the possibility that maybe somebody else's point of view is going to reveal that we are wrong. Truth is undefeated. The Bible is infallible, but we are not. There's a phrase that we like here at City Life Church called a confident pluralism. Let me tell you what I mean when I say that because lots of people mean different things when they use that phrase. Confident pluralism does not mean that we are okay with everyone having their own version of truth. That's not what it means. It might mean that to some people, it doesn't mean that to us. Confident pluralism means that we are accepting of others who believe differently in order to create an environment for the truth of any matter to reveal itself. If you believe that truth is undefeated, then we should not feel threatened when we are in an environment with people who believe differently than we do. If if we are insecure, and insecurity with what we believe often reveals itself through being contentious and argumentative, those are symptoms that somebody's insecure about what they believe. But if you believe that truth is undefeated, then you can bring your truth into the marketplace of ideas. And if you are right, hey, guess what? Truth will reveal itself. But if you're not, you've got to be open to the possibility that maybe you're the one that needs to be corrected The best way to be heard is not by being louder. Just let that settle in for a minute. <coughs> Social media. The best way to be heard is not by being louder. We're, we're, we're told that in the American culture and where we live, but that's not it. The, the, the best way to be heard is to listen. Did you know that? If, if, if you want to have influence, then learn how to listen to others. Truth doesn't need our vote to be right, but it does rely on our influence to be spread. So make sure you're protecting your voice. Make sure you're protecting your voice. Am I earning the right to be heard by listening intently to others? Because even if you are right, can, can we do, let's stop and think about that for a minute. Even if you are right, even if you are the person that's stepping into the marketplace of ideas and, and your perspective is the one that everyone else needs, then you should be asking yourself the question, how is it that I'm going to be able to influence them so that they can come to the realization that yes, they are fallible and, and, and they're, they're the ones that have bought into a falsity. I have not met a whole lot of people that are are willing to have their mind changed by someone who doesn't care about them. See, when I care about you more than I care about your ideas, you're more inclined to invite me into a place where you're willing to examine your ideas with me. Truth and knowledge are not the same thing. Because all of us know things that we think to be true that are not. Truth and knowledge are not the same thing. And love creates an environment where truth can challenge knowledge safely. It's one of the reasons why the local church is supposed to be a gift to the world. The Bible talks about the local church being a covenant community. It does not talk about the church as as, as, as being the community of people that are intellectually superior to other people, because we certainly know that's not the case. But yet that's how we oftentimes present ourselves to the world. The the church is presented in Scripture and who we're supposed to experience. We're a covenant community where we love each other, and, and the love that we have for each other is supposed to transcend. It's supposed to transcend what I think about what you believe. And if we step into this covenant community of love and relationship and trust and vulnerability and transparency, now we've created an environment where it's safe for us to be vulnerable to one another in an exchange of ideas. This church is just, okay, we're a lot different from other churches, but I think every church can say that. Are you with me? Every church has distinctions and unique things about them that they're called to. I think one of the things that this church is called to be, as you've heard me use this phrase before, is we are a dynamic space. We, we are a church that is comfortable with being with people that think differently than we do. And what makes that safe, what, what creates the, the boundary that enables us to enter into this covenant relationship, is that we do find alignment with some things. We, find, we, we, we are aligned with a vision, we're aligned with a mission, we're aligned with values, we're aligned with what we call a message and a moment. Those things we find agreement on, right? And, and, and because those things create a boundary for us to then enter into relationship, then we say, now we're okay with the friction that comes from competing ideas because we know we love each other more than our ideas, Our humanity does not naturally gravitate towards dynamic spaces. And the reason is because for most of us, dynamic spaces have only ever been experienced by us through unhealthy conflict. And the church is supposed to be a place that models something different, and we're working to do that here at City Life Church. Truth is undefeated. The next one is this, truth is learned. Someone say truth is learned. I'm just going to reference for the sake of time. Again, our notes are always online. John 16, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. Now, unless you think that Jesus is wrong, unless you think that Jesus misspoke, guess what that means for you and me? If if the Holy Spirit is always going to be leading us into all truth, guess what that means? It means that there is truth that you and I have yet to discover. And that verse is true for us for the rest of our lives meaning that there will always be more truth that the Holy Spirit needs to lead us into. And that truth might be truth that we've got to pick up to be added to our life, but oftentimes it's truth that corrects a falsity that we presently carry. This is part of the work of the Holy Spirit. Because truth and falsities are learned, I must acknowledge that there are some things that I presently believe to be true that are in fact false. I have to live with that kind of humility. It doesn't mean that I can't be confident, but it means that in my confidence, I walk with humility as I walk with other people. 1 Corinthians 13, 9 through 12, let me read these. It says, now our knowledge is partial and incomplete. This is what Paul was saying to the church of Corinth. He's saying, hey, people, you're fallible. The Bible's infallible. The Holy Spirit is infallible. The Father and the Son are infallible, but as created beings, we are Fallible. Our knowledge is partial and incomplete. And even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. This is Paul talking. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. And now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. And then we will see everything with perfect clarity. What's he talking about? He's talking about when we get to heaven. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. This is Paul talking. Is anybody here smarter than the Apostle Paul when it comes to doctrine and biblical truth? If you're thinking, well, maybe just everybody move away from that person, right? You're tracking with me? He was chosen by God to give us Scripture. Paul himself is saying of himself. I'm fallible. How much more are we? Come on. All in a mirror, he says, then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and complete. But then I will know everything completely just as God knows me completely. There's that thought coming back in about knowing God and being known by him. All throughout scripture. Don't you love that Paul says in the same way that we are fully known by God, there will come a day when we will know everything completely. But that day is not going to come for us until we get to heaven. Which means that before then, we walk with a confidence that what we believe is true, but with a humility that says, I still have falsities that I have to wrestle with, that I want the Holy Spirit to expose and lead me into. There is a reason that 1 Corinthians 12 precedes chapter 13, which is what we just read out of. Because in chapter 12, Paul is talking about diversity and he uses spiritual gifts as his example of diversity. But the timeless principle, (coughs) excuse me, is this idea that if you and I are going to step into this place of a humble confidence, we need to be immersed in a diverse setting. Am I courageous enough to test my truth with diverse relationships? Are you willing to build? meaningful, loving, trusting relationships with people who think differently than you do. Within the boundaries of some things that we are aligned with, that's what makes it safe for us to enter into a dynamic space. For too many people, they live their lives in an echo chamber and it's a dangerous place to be. The more ideological a community is, the less diverse it tends to be. Because people don't like their ideas to be challenged. They don't. You, you take any organization or entity into an environment that's steeped in ideology, which the church certainly is, right? Everything about our church is based on beliefs. One of the reasons why churches tend to not be diverse spaces, and I'm not just talking about ethnic and, 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 and racial diversity, I'm talking about all kinds of diversity. One of the reasons why churches tend to not be diverse spaces is because people don't like the tension that comes with it. We don't. But that's not, I don't think, what God intended the church to be. The church is supposed to be a safe place where relationships can form, where we love each other for who we are more than the beliefs that we share or don't share to create a safe environment for us to go through this journey of an intellectual conversion. If it didn't matter, then Jesus would have said something differently when he was talking about what it means to love God. He would have left mind off the list. Churches were always intended by God to be a place where people could come together and challenge one another in love and forgiveness, which is my last one. Somebody say, truth is forgiving. If you can't be kind, then be quiet. If you can't be kind, be quiet. Colossians 3, 13 and 14. Paul again writing, he says, Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love. Love which binds us together in perfect harmony. It's beautiful, isn't it? He doesn't say, above all else, clothe yourselves in the confidence that you're right and everybody else is wrong. Because we like wearing that garment, do we not? He says, no, no, no. Clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. You know what harmony means? Harmony means that a lot of people who don't agree with each other are getting along with each other. That's why he uses the word harmony. Harmony means different things in step with each other. Harmony means that different things are working together. That's what harmony means. You You can't have harmony without diversity. And Paul says, you know what? When we love each other, it makes it possible for us to be in a place of harmony, being patient and forgiving of one another. Listen to this Am I patient? and humble and forgiving of others as their relationship with truth matures. Oh, come on. Think about over your life, if you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time, think about all the things that you used to believe were true and now you realize they're not, and maybe you can think back to some people who were patient with you while you were working it out. Will you be patient with others while they're working it out? Because all of us are still going to have things that we need to work out. And I don't know about you, but I believe in reciprocity and sowing and reaping, and I need to I want to sow a lot of patience. You with me? Because I want some patience coming back my way. Are we patient and humble and forgiving of others as their relationship with truth matures. Now, is there a time to set aside being gentle there is? That's another sermon for another time. My Bible is the same as yours. We understand that Jesus stepped into the temple and turned over the tables. There was a wrathfulness to who God is. Again, I've done a blog series on that. We did a sermon series on it a couple of years ago called Ap- 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 Apolitikos, which is talking about the wrathfulness of God. So That's a part of who God is. The, the, difference there, the difference there is that Jesus was only wrathful when that's what served in the best interest of other people. He was never wrathful out of being exasperated, it was never cathartic for him. So many times for us, we step out of a place of being gentle, not because we're operating in a place of biblical righteous indignation or that we're representing God's wrath to a person because that's what's in their best interest. It's because we're irritated and frustrated, and it just spills out of who we are. That's not what Jesus did in the marketplace. When you are at odds with someone, who thinks differently than you do, and it's irritating to you? Let me let me give you these four questions to ask. Can I support their motivation? Can I respect their process? Can I celebrate their character? And can I trust their friendship? Those are four great, great questions that will give you pause. When you are at odds with someone that you are in relationship with, someone that you care about who 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 you're a little bit irritated, dare we go as far to say that you were offended by something that they say or believe. These are four great questions to ask yourself. To bring you back into this place of trusted relationship in a dynamic space where you can work out your differences together. Gonna invite the worship team to come back up. Truth is undefeated. Truth is forgiving, truth is learned. These are all part of this journey of what we're calling an intellectual conversion. For the rest of my days, if I'm going to love God with my mind, which Jesus says I'm supposed to do, then I've got to be on this journey of taking responsibility for my own falsities, acknowledging that I'm I'm fallible, I'm not perfect. I have a, a perfect book that was given to me by a perfect God and we work it out in the midst of an imperfect community with imperfect friends that we love. Intellectual conversion, let's read it together one more time, involves taking responsibility for the truth or the falsity of one's beliefs by examining them and testing them. And this is how you do it. Do I tend to see everything in life as either being right or wrong? Is there right or wrong in this life? You better believe it is. And we talk about it here at City Life Church. But not everything is right, and not everything is wrong. Having church on Saturday, hello, does that ring a bell to anybody? Right? There's all kinds of things that we would say are supposed to be open-handed issues. Do I deal well with diversity of opinion, even when it is an area of great concern for me? Do I consider other points of view? before making a judgment. How many fundamental shifts in thinking have I undergone in life? I like like this one. How about in the last year? See, a a great way to to ask yourself, if, 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 if you're experiencing intellectual conversion, as you look throughout your life, can you identify some things and say, oh, I was so wrong on that and I didn't even know? All of us should have a few things that we can put on a list like that. Stand with me as we pray. Jesus, we, we don't want to just pay you lip service because you had a lot to say about that when you walked upon this earth. We, we don't want to just give intellectual assent to who you are. We want to be in your family and, and we want to live like it. We want to be for your mission and, and devoted to it. We want to think about this, this, this extra word that you gave to us through, through Brennan tonight of when we get to the end. If someone to write a page, what would be the synopsis? For all of us, oh God, may it be that we were reflexively obedient to you, that our hearts were soft to our God. If we know, God, that the only way we're going to gravitate to that place is to do some of this heavy lifting that we've talked about tonight. Help us to walk with humility. Help us, oh God, to listen to others. Help us, O oh God, to immerse ourselves into a community where, yes, we can align on some things that are important to create a safe space for us to build meaningful relationships where we can challenge, impress one another, growing and maturing in our faith, loving you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, just as you invited us to. In Jesus' name, come on, let's worship together.